Uh, I don't know about you, but Thanksgiving for me uh, is, is a time of family. It's also a time where um, my weird relatives um, remind me that they're the weird ones and I'm not the weird one and I feel better about myself. Um, by the way, if you can't figure out who the weird relative is, it's you. And so there's a problem there. You might want to figure that out. But uh, Thanksgiving for me is uh, like I would love to be able to share with you that little Facebook, Instagram moment where you've all just like come together and we, we feel like smiling together and we feel like sharing with the world what we're all about. We, we, for some reason, don't do that, haven't done that in quite a while. Usually when we do that, it ends up with someone yelling at the photographer, a kid crying, and um, something else happening. So, But Thanksgiving reminds me of forced conversations about jobs, about kids, Usually in my family about pets, like we were sharing photos of pets this Thanksgiving um, because that's what we do. And um, there's also though this hard part about Thanksgiving, not just the awkward parts, but also this hard part of this, this unspoken rule. And I think this is what makes holidays so difficult. This unspoken rule that you ignore whatever wounds that the other person has kind of dealt you over the years. But you just kind of ignore that. And if you bring it up, then, then you're kind of just bitter about it. Um, and you're judged by fellow family members. And just, you know, just if you could just keep that to yourself, sweep it under the rug, and we'll all be better for it. This Thanksgiving, then, we'll be able to be tolerated. At least that's how it feels sometimes for me around the holidays. And I'll just say this, like, the holidays are no joke. When it comes to depression and what they have dabbed the holiday blues, it is a real thing. And so if the holidays now smack you in the face and all of a sudden um, some terrible experiences happen around the holidays or perhaps it's just a, a reminder of all the things that you don't have, um, let me just tell you that you're not alone, that you're normal, um, because coupled with the awkward weirdness of what family can be and then you couple that with everybody else's seemingly really awesome time at their Thanksgiving with football in the yard and like softball together and kickball out there in the cul-de-sac and you didn't get to do any of that. And you're like, man, I really wish I could have done that. I don't have a family that can do that. Coupled with like the weirdness and then the social media facade, it will drive you into a hole that if you're not careful, it will grab a hold of you and it will be January and you won't know what happened. So if that's you, if you have a tendency for that, if your family kind of sets yourself up for that, can I just say like, please talk to somebody. Don't let the holiday blues rule you. Instead, realize that it's going on and, and do whatever you can to talk to a trusted friend or a pastor or a counselor to be able to get you through these next five, six weeks. It's worth that effort, whatever time, um, whatever money it takes to do that, please do that. Oftentimes, uh, the holidays for me are, are, are usually a little bit more blue uh, than other types, uh, times of the year. Um, because when I leave my family, I wonder, if someone were new to our family, what would they have thought about what we just did? Would they describe it as true and genuine love, or would they have described it as a toleration for one another just to get us through a few hours? And when I think about my family, my family of origin, I also think then about how people experience church, this family, or any family, any faithful, redemptive, God's expression of family in a local body. How is it that people then experience that body? Is it also toleration just to get through a few hours together? Or is there a genuine love? We gather together on Sunday mornings, I'll tell you what is most known um, in our country, and that is um, whatever goods and services that are produced for you, is it good enough for you? 
Um, and I know that because um, very trusted, seasoned pastors have gone before us to tell us that some of the most dangerous elements of our church culture today is the fact that we go to consume, we don't go to contribute. We were reading an article last night, Melissa read this article last night about Eugene Peterson who died um, this month. And Eugene Peterson was a guy, he was a church planter. And, um, and as he planted this church, it grew and grew over the years and he wrote a book called The Message amongst other books. And, um, and when he did so, he gave this as a, as a rallying um, critic, uh, criticism of our culture today, especially in America. Eugene Peterson says this in, a, in an interview before he passed away. He said, American culture is probably the least cult Christian culture that we've ever had because it is so materialistic and it is so full of lies. The whole advertising world is just intertwined with lies, appealing to the worst instincts that we have. The problem is people have been treated as consumers for so long that they don't know any other way to live. So for this church, for any church that you've been a part of, what makes it distinct? What makes it different? So when people come and visit our church, we usually sit down with them over coffee or lunch and we try to get to know them. And as we do, we usually ask them along the way, somewhere along the way, hey, what are you looking for in a church? I just want to hear kind of your top four as to what you're looking for in a church so that I can help you. I can probably cut to the chase, like bring a six-month gap on this thing so I can tell you like we're going to be that or we're not going to be that. And, and I can be pretty honest about what all that looks like. But, you know, I've never, usually what I hear is Bible studies, good preaching, good worship, good small groups. I've never heard, do you love each other? I've never heard, I want to make sure that you can forgive one another. I have heard a lot of other things that might lead to that, but I've never heard one person say, do you have a genuine, godly affection for one another that flows out of this genuine love that God has given you freely? I've never heard that. That's how I know that we're in a consumeristic mentality because it's usually not ever something that is virtuous but is something that is a good or a service that we seem to look for. And yet Jesus' first church of 12 plus had no building, they had no professional preacher. Sure, he was called rabbi but only by a few. They had no band and they only had one group and it was closed, you couldn't get into it. At least not uh, to give you a part of the 12 anyways. It was known though for one thing. It was known for the kind of love that doesn't expect good behavior, but when good behavior is absent, there's a posture of forgiveness. And so today as we come off of Thanksgiving, I wanna to talk to us about what does it look like for us to be a community of forgiveness? And as we look at what it looks like to be a community of forgiveness, the first thing I want us to look at is look at how saturated Jesus' community was with forgiveness, this ethic of forgiveness. It was their lifeblood. It had to have been. But look at what the Bible says in Matthew 5, some of Jesus' first teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about this, about reconciliation. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
Reconciliation with one another is going to affect how much you experience the worship and the reconciliation that you have vertically. It's why we pass the peace every time we enter into a time of worship because we want to experience, be reminded of the gospel through confession, through repentance, through an assurance of pardon. And then as we're reminded of that gospel in our gathering times, we want to pass that same peace that God just reminded us of to one another so that when we come around the word of God, we will be reconciled, hopefully. That was the priority of Jesus. He goes on in Matthew 6, still in the Sermon on the Mount, when, with the Lord's Prayer, he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It's right there in his first teachings. When he performed miracles, what was the main thing that he said? He usually didn't say, stand up and walk. He usually said, and got him in trouble, your sins are forgiven. And they would ridicule him and go, whoa, 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 who are you to forgive sins? Oh, Oh, you think this is just about him walking. Oh, well, so that you know I have the power to forgive sins, here, here's the power to walk. It was about the forgiveness of sins. In death, when he's dying on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In resurrection, in John 20, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Okay, now you can debate on what that actually means, but Jesus said those words. Okay, so here's what we know. Even in resurrection, from beginning to end, forgiveness saturates Jesus' life. It is an ethic. It is the lifeblood of his community. You can debate, debate what that means all you want, but the truth is that forgiveness was the heart of his community. And that forgiveness would build into something, this family that would be unified in John 17, Jesus prays this for us, for us. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the disciples' word. That's you and me, y'all. This is what he's praying before he's dying for you and me, that they may all be one, unified, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This idea of reconciliation, of oneness, of unity, of forgiveness, all smacked these men in the face. They were fishermen. You ever been around fishermen? You ever been down to the docks in Galveston? I grew up down there with my dad, had a boat. I, it, it can get a little surly at times. They were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were entrepreneurs. Okay, they were religious zealots. They bickered. They jockeyed for position. They cut each other out. And eventually, they changed the world. How? How did they go from one to the other? The community of disciples which followed Jesus were marked by one thing. Not common interests, not hobbies, not a similar stage of life, not a networking group after work. It was one thing. It was a deep ethic of forgiveness. So if we're going to become the people that God intended for us to become, we must rediscover a conviction and an ethic of forgiveness. This has always been the thing that sets Christians apart. It's not good behavior. It's the posture of forgiveness that comes when we don't behave well. See, that's what sets us apart. All other religions, including this idea of karma, says that you get what you deserve. Christianity is about Jesus getting what you deserve and you being, setting, being set free, forgiven, so that you would forgive others. 
Here's what this looks like, right? Paul is writing to a specific people. Uh, this, this book of Ephesians is written to the church at Ephesus in a town called Ephesus. It was a community of people. And to understand what a community of forgiveness is, I just want to dig into this particular passage. First of all, a community of forgiveness doesn't minimize sin or brush it under the rug like my Thanksgiving experience might have looked like. But instead, it brings it to light to discuss it, to confess it, to repent of it. Why does a community of forgiveness so easily and so so delightfully do such a difficult thing? The Bible says right here in verse 25, let each one of you speak the truth, the truth of the gospel with his neighbor. Why? Because we're members of one another. We belong to one another. I don't know about you, but like when one person in my family uh, hurts, the rest of the, per- the, the family hurts. So some of you know, Melissa posted online this week that we went camping, and um, we thought it was gonna be 37 at night. Turns out, 31 at night. Um, so it was a little cold, a little cold for my taste, uh, but we were there to make some memories, right? And so the next day, the last day that we woke up, the last memory that we made uh, was a painful one. And it was actually not the last one, it was the second to the last one. But it was one where the kids were off in the creek bread and they were looking for rocks for whoever's rock collection, either Moses or Reese, because you gotta have rocks. And Reese goes over and kicks a cactus, okay? So she kicks a cactus, all is well and fine and good. But her little innocent kick turned into my other kids going, ooh, what was that you just kicked? And they go over and they pick it up and all of a sudden Moses comes screaming back with spines in his finger and for the next 15 or 20 minutes we have a little reprimand session with my oldest that says, why would you kick a cactus? I'm so confused. Have you seen us get near a cactus? I don't understand why you would do that. Could you help me understand what was going through your mind when you decided, hey, kicking a cactus would be fun? Did you think about your brother and sister that were there that were going to then be curious about said crushed cactus and put those spines in their fingers? Did you think about that? No, you didn't think about that. But here we are. We're now all thinking about that together and we're gonna now take our little little man fingernails and try and pick out little spines out of my daughter's and my wife will do it out of my son's hand. And so for the next 15 or 20 minutes, one person had some pain. Now we all got pain. This is what it means to be a part of a membership, to belong to one another. One person has some pain. Now we all got some pain. See, that's why you you willingly will call out and be encouraged to confess and repent sin because when one person sins, it affects all of us, right? It's the same thing with my family. It's the same thing here because we belong to one another means that we share an obligation to hold each other accountable and to encourage one another not to be shaped into our own image. That's where communities get lost is when we start to try and shape the other person into an image that looks like me. That's not the point of being a community of forgiveness. Instead, the point is to be a community, to be encouraging and holding each other accountable, to be be understanding of other people's sin and of our own, so that we would be made into the image of Jesus, not into the image of me or you or anyone else. See, if we didn't belong to one another, we would turn a blind eye to another's offenses. I want y'all to hear this now because this is one of the, the marks of our church is that we love one another to come alongside one another and go, hey brother, hey sister, don't know if you're headed down the right way. If we were not a community of forgiveness, thus understanding God's forgiveness in us and therefore flowing that out to one another, if we didn't want to do that, we would just turn our blind eye and be like, well, that's, that's not my business. 
It is our business, family, for we belong to one another. As members of one another, we are obligated to help another's holiness, journeying with one another to Jesus. Communities of forgiveness are not fruit inspectors. You know what I'm saying, right? You're not there to inspect fruit. You are there to kind of encourage one another to be wholly committed to personal holiness and to spiritual growth of one another. So a good example of this is any good marriage, right? It's a safe place. You are covenanted together. You are committed to one another. That, that no matter really what happens, you're saying on your wedding day, for better or for worse, you're acknowledging there's gonna be some worse. And in those worse days, you, you ain't going anywhere, you can't. The covenant keeps you. Even if you wanted to, the covenant keeps you, should keep you. And so in those worst days, the covenant keeps you there to be committed to one another so that you realize you have to either one of two things. Swim in a pool of bitterness for the rest of your life or make the decision to forgive one another. To not hold their offense over their head. And to look past it. That's the decision before any good marriage, any, any loving husband, any loving wife, that's the decision that will be befo put before you. But this beautiful covenant in a marriage illustrates for us what the church should be. It's in this type of a relationship, it becomes clear over time, that there's a common need for God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness. And it's in that community that you experience a safe place where failure is spoken to in love and where forgiveness comes as a result of our failures, failures for one another. That's the vision that God puts before us, but there's, there's barriers to that, in there? I mean, if it was that easy, we would just go live in that and be like, okay, well, Jesus said it, let's go do it, and let's go. There's a lot of other stuff going on below the surface that I wanna hope to just kind of bring to the surface so that we can see it, identify it, repent of it, and then maybe ask for forgiveness from one another if we need to and then move forward. See, if a community of forgiveness is what Jesus embodied, why don't we simply just, just kind of live that way? Live in that community and not in one another. Well, the answer really comes down to this big one. You probably already have it in your head. It's pride. Pride, that's my first barrier, and then everything else kind of flows out of that. Pride, the voice of pride, it really goes like this inside your head. How dare you? Don't you know who I am? And who are you to be telling me? I would never do that to you. Those are the voices of pride that rise up. And here, in the, this, this idea of pride, or when pride washes over us, we forget how what they have done, that what we have done, uh, the same thing to Jesus, only worse. We forget that. So if you feel taken advantage of in any relationship, rest assured that you have taken advantage of Jesus. If you feel neglected in any relationship, rest assured you have neglected Jesus all the more. If you felt another person could have been kinder, rest assured that what comes out of your mouth, is an, <laughs> it offends God to the utmost. So the whole point in all this is, is found right there in the end of our passage, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. You see, that last clause in this last verse of this section, as God in Christ forgave you, destroys our pride and therefore makes it possible when we remember how much in debt we were to him, 
how much of an offense we were to him so that we can then drop the offense of another and forgive them. When we forget that the truth that you and I are more sinful than we could have ever imagined and yet more loved than we could ever have imagined, we then become, acu- we then become accusers of our brethren, which is the disposition of our enemy, not the disposition of those who are in God's family. Frederick Buechner says this about forgiveness and pride. He says this, that, the pr- that pride, the pride that keeps us from forgiving is the same pride which keeps us from accepting forgiveness. What does that mean? It means as those that cannot forgive other people usually have not fully accepted that they really are that bad before God. That they stand on some form of goodness, personal goodness before God and appeal to that goodness before God and therefore, they, they, they stand on that goodness, even if they don't think they are. That's what's happening. When you can't forgive here, you've got to realize you don't accept the forgiveness that's here. And so pride creeps in, and those that cannot extend forgiveness horizontally have not really accepted the fullness that God wants to give them of, of forgiveness vertically. Pride the first barrier to this vision, this vision of a community of forgiveness, this would then lead to the second barrier, what I'm calling just the lack of vulnerability. When you get prideful, all of a sudden you do not want to be vulnerable enough to say, hey, I hurt you, I'm sorry. You also don't want to be vulnerable, this is the harder part for me, just personally, I also don't want to be vulnerable enough to go to somebody and go, hey, I just want you to know, man, like, like you hurt me. You have the ability to hurt me. I don't like to say that out loud, definitely not on the stage, but that's the reality that goes on in me, that that pride, if if I can just break that down and realize that I actually am capable of being hurt because I'm human and not Jesus, and therefore I need to speak that in vulnerability to a brother or a sister. See, a lack of vulnerability looks like this. When we are offended or you offend another, we, we have to be vulnerable in order to either seek forgiveness or confess our sins. When we are caught up in being right, we lack the power to be vulnerable. James 5.16 says that we need to confess our sins to one another, to lay down our arms, and when we do that, we reaffirm our justification in Christ alone and that you would believe again and again that you have been wholly accepted by God because of the blood of Jesus, that he accepts you in spite of your sin, that he knows the sin that you have committed. He knows the sin that they have committed to you, towards you, and he accepts you anyways. In spite of all that, surely then you can confess sin to another. Surely then you can humbly receive the confession of another. Isn't this what it means to put away all bitterness is what this just says in verse 31. Put away, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you then along with all malice. Isn't that what that looks like? To put away corrupting talk, to put away anger, to put away wrath, to somehow put away pride. Be vulnerable with one another, humble before God. Third barrier is this. Not just pride, not just vulnerability, but also then we move into this really awkward phase of assumption, of assuming some things about one another. That because you cannot approach one another in humility, you begin to operate out of assumption. You begin to label one another in simplistic ways, like they're just a rude person, they're not really for me. 
They don't really understand what I've been going through. Really simplistic ways that creates assumption and also creates distance from one another. And in that distance, you can judge, you condemn. It's really hard to judge someone when you're right next to them. And you hear their story and you understand where they were coming from. And you become a part of whatever it is that they've gone through. It's really difficult to continue the judgment and the assumption and the pride when you move closer to people. And you realize they're actually not my enemy. Ephesians 6 would say that our enemy is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the principalities, the ruler of the air. That's our enemy, and he wants us to mess all this up. He wants us to operate out of assumption, create distance, perhaps even divorce relationships, so then, then you can operate out of this false assumption, this lie for one another. Oh, well, they're just that way, in that label, whatever it may be. See, this is what it looks like for the sun to go down on your anger. This is what it looks like for us. In verse 26, there's two different words here that are used. Verse 26 says this, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There's two different words there for be angry and then anger. This idea of, of being angry is, uh, is, is this. It's, it's a strong displeasure. It's really emotive. Be angry, the strong, be, you can have strong displeasure. You can do that apparently without sinning. I've yet to figure out how to do that real well, but we're, we're working on it. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's a different word. And that word is literally this, an anger mixed with embitterment. It's a festering anger. So when the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on that kind of anger, not the first kind of anger, you can be angry and not sin. That's okay. What's forbidden is that we let the sun go down. We just let it fester. And like a disease, it just eats away healthy cells within our body. And the enemy would want us to do nothing more than that. This is though forbidden by God because it is toxic to the family of God. It is toxic to let anger fester inside of you to create some sort of a bitter spirit towards one another. And all that happens through assumption, through pride, through lack of confession, of lack of vulnerability, and all this leads to the final barrier of bitterness. You see, as a result of assuming and letting anger fester, you maintain your rights. I have the right to feel this way. They did this, after all. You'll never believe what they did. And let me just say this, like, if you're in some sort of an abusive relationship, you are called to forgive, but this is not a, a talk on reconciliation, okay? You need to get out of that relationship as fast as you can with the help that God has provided through your leaders and through your pastors. We want to help you in that situation. Um, this is not a way to go, oh, well, no matter what they've done to you, you gotta forgive them. Yes, you do, but that doesn't mean be reconciled. Forgiveness is a one-way street. Reconciliation takes two. I've forgiven a lot of people in my life that I'm not reconciled towards. I'd like to be, but I've, there's forgiveness there. But it takes two to be reconciled, right? So when we maintain our rights, we become bitter. In the process, we give the enemy, though, a foothold. This is what the Bible says, that when we let our anger, when they let the sun go down on our anger, verse 27 says this, and give no opportunity to the devil. Other Bible translations say don't give him a foothold. 
That word right there is opportunity, and it, it has this connotation. It's a military term. It is surveying your enemy's territory to figure out where to strike so he can take over and dwell there. So don't, let me just read it again with that definition. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun fester, or not the sun go down in your anger that you're festering either that's leading to bitterness and give no opportunity to the devil, give no, no opportunity for the devil to survey your territory to figure out where to strike you so he can live with you. That's how important this idea of being a community of forgiveness is. The enemy knows that you are forgiven before God and if you refuse to forgive others, he sees that as, your, as his place to strike and he will tear you out of a community that, that loves you. The enemy will tear you out of a community that loves you to isolate you. Why will he do that? Because he is like a, he is like a lion, right? Roaring, prowling around, looking for someone to devour, the Bible says. And who are the people that are vulnerable to being devoured? What does a lion look for? Have you seen like any documentary on lions? They look for the animal that is weak, that's a baby, and that's away from the herd. The enemy wants to isolate you through all this whole process that's all internal, that if you don't have the vulnerability, laying down your pride and just the courage to go to one another and go, hey brother, hey sister, you hurt me last week. Or hey brother, hey sister, did I hurt you last month? What happened? All of a sudden, all this starts to fester in us, will isolate us, bring us out of a community that loves you, wants gospel growth for you, and all that so they can find a way to devour you. Now, I'm saying all this because I want to explain something about our church. So we know that this is a hard spot. Like, we know that the Grove is not the easiest church to be a part of. We are aware we're aware that you don't connect with the people in your neighborhood group. We're aware. We're aware that when we, when, we, when we kind of draw lines on how we structured our church, that doing it geographically would be a guard on your heart and on mine to only go and hang out with people that you like, that look like you, that talk like you, that believe like you, that have political views like you. We knew that when we geographically said, this is the way that we're going to organize our church, by geography, not by affinity, not by stages of life, we knew it was going to be difficult, and we did it anyways. Why would we do that knowing that it was going to be hard? Number one, it's biblical. So let's just be, go back to that, Acts 17, 26, that there's a boundary and a time and a place that God's put you. Titus 1.5 says that we should appoint elders in every town, bring that to our world, to every neighborhood, a geographic area that God wants us to care for through the raising up and the releasing of elders and leaders. So we see that in the Bible. But more than that, what we've experienced is that the true growth that God wants us to have is not by sitting around a book study with some of our best friends. The true growth that God wants us to have is to sit in a living room with people that don't look like me, don't think like me, don't have the same background as me, older than me, younger than me, come from different generations, different nations, and whatever else. They drive you nuts. They agitate you. They bother you. They bother me. And we knew 
And we now see God's wisdom in geographic organization to see that it is in those moments that you have to realize how selfish you are. How incredibly difficult that you are. How incredibly disappointing you are to the Lord and yet he forgives you and loves you and came for you and, and purchased that disappointment so that you can then forgive and love and bear with one another. See, the one another's in scriptures are all really hard to do with people that you don't like. Super easy to do with people you do. Which is why Jesus said things like, hey, don't just love the people that you like. Even the tax collectors do that. So we knew that this was gonna be hard, but it didn't make us shy away from having this deep desire to have intergenerational Christians discipling one another. Not just young marrieds talking about what it looks like to be young married or empty nesters talking about what it looks like to be empty nesters or 40s or 50s or whatever it may be. No, instead to be intergenerational discipling one another that empty nesters would disciple young parents, young parents discipling their children and all that happening within a smaller community that we call neighborhood groups. See, that's what we see in Titus 1 and in Titus 2 and the rest of the New Testament. That's where we know that true growth will happen when we repent and we believe in the gospel as a primary result of being in community and family with those that absolutely drive us nuts. But if we have a, a value of forgiveness in that community, then we don't sweep these things that drive us crazy under the rug. We call it out. Like me and my wife, what we do is we go, hey, I'm just gonna call out a crazy here. That's what we call it. We call it calling out a crazy. I'm gonna call out a crazy here. Feels like whenever this, this, this happened, I just, mm, mm. And then the other person go, oh man, you know what? That's actually not crazy at all. I'm sorry that I made you feel that way. I'd never intended to do that, blah, 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 blah. But because the crazy's been called out, we can now put it before us and go, oh, well now we're dealing with this. I knew there was some distance. I just didn't know what it was. Now we know what it is. And either I can say, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that, or I go, yeah, that is crazy. I don't know where that came from. Or she'll say that to me. But we call it out and we bring it to the light so that we can know what we're dealing with. That's what a community of forgiveness will do. So here's what happens, right? This barrier of forgiveness, that pride, lack of vulnerability, then into um, assumption and bitterness, it creates this isolation. And here's what I, we, we have found out in the life of this church. Most people give a community one to three years until they realize like, wow, this is not the community I thought it was. And then at about that one to three years, they make this fatal in my mind decision to divorce themselves from it. Now, let me just say this, like, if this is your place, that's cool. Go find your place. There are, there are times where that's been really good. But there are other times where people leave right at that moment, they're like peeking into the promised land and see giants, and they go, we can't do it. And they gotta take 40 laps. That's always been my fear when people get right up next to true, deep healing that only comes through faith and walking with a community into a place that's really unknown. So my, my prayer for us is to lean into some of these difficulties, to be patient with the process of becoming a community of forgiveness, because it's not gonna happen overnight. And though we're four years old as a church, it will take the next 40 for us to actually realize a lot of this beautiful stuff. That's my prayer is that we would be patient with this. So with those barriers in mind, there is hope for us though in the New Testament. 
In the parallel passage to Ephesians 4 is Colossians 3. And this is our hope for us. This is the path to a community of forgiveness. In Colossians 3, verse 12 and 13, the Bible says this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on then. Put it on. Clothe yourself in this. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. What Paul is saying both in Ephesians and in Colossians is that we have a new identity as chosen. New identity as redeemed. A new identity as perfect before God. A new identity as holy and holy and beloved by God. That if we would live out of that identity, then the fear that comes of being vulnerable, of laying down our arms, of being humble before God and humble with one another will take care of itself. Put it on. Put on your new clothes. Learn how to dress yourself. Some of us are still working on that. You LSU fans are wondering if I dress myself today. I did. Okay, here we go. Put on the right clothes. Don't live in that dirty, old clothes self. It's stanky. That one that doesn't forgive people, that one that's full of pride, full of malice, full of, full of harshness for one another, it doesn't fit you anymore. You've outgrown it. Put on the new clothes that God has provided for you, holy and beloved, chosen by God. And then, are you not then fueled and enabled to do this stuff? Can we not then do the next part, holy and beloved? You have been compassionate hearts. We have kindness, we have humility, meekness, patience. We then can bear one with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against each other, AKA you will, if you do this long enough, then we forgive each other. See, the issue is that we have forgotten. We have forgotten this last part that as the Lord has forgiven you, See, have you forgotten how desperate you are still for God's grace? Have you forgotten how great a sacrifice Jesus made for a wretch like you? Have you forgotten that your greatest deeds before God are but filthy rags before a holy God? Have you forgotten the great sacrifice which Jesus willingly paid to come to earth, live a life of ridicule and deep misunderstanding, and then to be crucified between two thieves for you? And have you forgotten that God's redemption does not end there? Have you forgotten that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives inside of you? And now then, are you not empowered to forgive? Are you not empowered to not be bitter? Are you not empowered then to not be ruled by anger, by pride, and by scorekeeping? Love bears all things. It does not keep a record of wrong. Remembering this, then, does, not, does it not make you compassionate towards the sin of others? Does it not then level the ground before God in humble need of forgiveness together? Does it not then promote patience for gospel growth in yourself and in others? Does it not then also empower you to bear with one another, therefore forgiving one another? Of course it does. We are left with no excuse, which is why 
We all will go, man, this is really hard. It's really hard to forgive. You don't understand what that person did to me. That's why Paul says this in the end. As the Lord has forgiven you. Remember what you have done to Jesus. Remember the offense that you were before God. And then you'll be empowered to then forgive others. And he says this at the end. So you also must forgive. Y'all, being a community of forgiveness isn't optional if we're going to follow Jesus. It's not like, a, like, an, like an elective class in college where you're like, forgiveness, man, that's like for the, for the real Christians. I'm out. I'm gonna stick with my basics and just roll out this way. No, it is basic. It is a basic class for all of us to, to, to take and to graduate from and to, be, to live in with those skills empowered by the Spirit. So I would just end with this. Putting on this new identity of chosen, beloved, holy, who then do you need to forgive? Probably someone that's been rolling around in the back of your mind for the last 20 or so minutes as I've preached. Make it 40, I don't know how long it was. Probably someone in the back of your mind that you are thinking, man, I just have a really difficult time forgiving what that person did to me. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's an ex-spouse, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a friend you lost a long time ago. Whatever name comes to mind, perhaps it's time to sit with the Lord. Ask him how to do this as holy, beloved, chosen of God so that you can live as God calls us to live. Freely forgiven and freely forgiving one another. Let's pray. Father, help us. We cannot do this by our own strength and in our own power. When we hear words like forgiveness and reconciliation, I'm immediately cut to the heart because I'm not good at this. I'm, not, I'm, I'm a lot better at keeping grudges than I am at forgiving. So whoever came to mind when we started thinking about who we need to forgive, would you give us the faith? Would you give us the faith to be able to respond in such a way that would look like joyful obedience, just like we talked about, just like we, we read about in the beginning of our time today? If we live in these ways, empowered by your spirit, what we will find out is that your ways are much higher than our ways. That the truth is, we don't, we're not called to understand them. We're called to live by faith. And so would you just, just take reign and ownership over our lives, over our minds, over our hearts? And as you do so, would you help us live like citizens of a kingdom that's ruled by a good and benevolent king? And this is your will for your kingdom. And so may we be people that live with the fuel of the Spirit so that we may be able to forgive one another, be a community that has an ethic of forgiveness, or have a posture that says, hey, I know you didn't mean to hurt me, but you did. And for someone else to be humble enough to receive that word, would you, would you, would you put that in us? Would you humble us? Allow us to be humble enough to be repentant and yet faithful 
Help us confess our sins to one another, for in that, James says that we will find healing. Help us heed the words of, of Proverbs 28. They say, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them, they will obtain mercy. That mercy is forgiveness, is freedom. So help us, Father. Help us, Holy Spirit. Jesus, you've purchased us, and we ask God for your help. Amen.